a few pages to your right to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're coming today to verse 7 and verse 8. I would speed it up, Seth Hawkins makes fun of me every week. Um, I've decided I just don't care. So, we're back to two verses this morning, verse 7 and verse 8. Looking at the necessity of ministry partnerships, or the blessing of ministry partnerships. Uh, which is to say that we need one another to carry out the agenda of the Lord. On one hand, absolutely, ministry can be done um, by ourselves. And in fact, most of the time when we think of a calling or think of ministry, we think of it in terms of individualism. We think of our individualistic calling. And yet, at the very same time, uh, much more effective than our individual ministry is our corporate ministry together. And in terms of a corporate ministry, we're talking and thinking in terms of a partnership. And the way that that is most commonly expressed and most commonly seen and even constantly seen in the life of the church is between the church and her pastor or the church and her pastors, her leadership. There is to be a unique, divinely ordained, divinely designed, divinely given relationship between a church and her leaders. And that's what we come to consider today out of Paul's own words. What is the relationship or what should be the relationship between a pastor and his church on one hand and a church and her pastor on the other hand? So let me first begin by highlighting a little bit of the relationship from a pastor to his church. And I want to highlight that by reading portions of a letter to you from July 13th, 1637, by a Scottish pastor named Samuel Rutherford. He was in prison at the time that he wrote this letter. He was in prison for his preaching of Christ in Scotland and his faithfulness in ministry to Christ. And he wrote this letter, which is called the Letter to the Parishioners at Anwath. And this is what he has to say. These are just a few excerpts of his letter. I want you to notice his heart. <clears throat> Very first paragraph, he says, I long exceedingly to know if the oft-spoken-of match between you and Christ holds, and if you follow on to know the Lord. My day thoughts and my night thoughts are of you. While you sleep, I am afraid for your souls, that they may be off the rock. Next to my Lord Jesus and this fallen church, you have the greatest share of my sorrow and also my joy. You are the matter of tears, care, fear, and daily prayers of an oppressed prisoner of Christ. As I am in bonds for my high and lofty one, my royal and princely master, my Lord Jesus, so I am in bonds for you. Oh, if any pain or any sorrow, any loss that I can suffer for Christ and for you were laid in pledge to buy Christ's love for you, and oh, that I could lay my dearest joys next to Christ my Lord in the gap between you and eternal destruction, and oh, if I had paper as broad as heaven and earth and ink as deep as the sea and all the rivers and fountains of the earth and were able to write the love, the worth, the excellency, the sweetness and due praises 
of our dearest and fairest, well-beloved Savior. And then if you could read and understand them, what else could I want? If my ministry among you should make a marriage between the little bride and the bridegroom, how rich a prisoner were I. If I could obtain of my Lord the salvation of you all, what a prey had I gotten to have catched you in Christ's net. Oh, then I had cast out my Lord's lines and his net with a rich gain. My witness is above. Your heaven would be two heavens to me. And the salvation of you all as two salvations to me. I would subscribe a suspension and a postponement of my own heaven for many hundred years, according to God's good pleasure, if you were sure to be found in the upper lodging in our Father's house before me. That's a pastor writing to his people and his deepest affections and deepest longings for them is what? Their eternal souls, their eternal well-being. He labors for them. He says, my day thoughts and my night thoughts are for you. I long for your well-being. I long for you to be married to Christ, for the gap that exists between you and our Lord to be bridged. In other words, they are the objects of his thought. All of his desires are bound up in them. His longings are for their eternal security in Christ. Those church are the true passions of every true pastor. Or rather, they ought to be. A pastor is a man called by God who is to give himself, literally sacrifice himself for his people. Paul writes in other places, and he'll reference in this letter to the Philippians, I don't mind my life being poured out for you, for your well-being, for your good. A pastor is one who gives himself for the well-being of his flock. But the relationship between a church and her pastor isn't just one-sided. How is the church to relate to her pastor? Well, Charles Spurgeon tells us, and this is what he says, There are churches wherein the minister is nominally the leading officer, but he cannot lead because the church does not follow. To illustrate, a young officer, sword in hand, leaps the rampart. He looks back, but his troop is yards behind him. He cries, come on, come on. But there is no answer. He might as well call to stones. This is poor work. But see another. Where he advances, his soldiers are at his side. They are as eager as he is. The victory is as much for them as for him. And they feel it to be so. Spurgeon's getting at an important point there. A pastor does very little without the devotion, influence, aid, and support and care of his people. In ministry, there's a relationship and a partnership, a collective existence that's to take place. The pastor is described by the scriptures as given to the church. The church needs a pastor. And simultaneously, the church is given to the pastor. The pastor needs the church. 
And this is exactly what Paul's getting at here in Philippians chapter 1. His relationship with these Philippian believers is the very thing that allows him to serve faithfully the Lord Jesus Christ and advance the gospel even while in prison. It's his affections for them that motivates them. It's their support for him that keeps him faithful and keeps him sustained and keeps him going up until the point that eventually we get into verse 12 and we read of the advancement of the gospel. How is Paul able to endure? How is Paul able to wrestle? How is Paul able to continue on even when chained and shackled in prison? And how is he still able to share the gospel so that people in Rome come to salvation? On one hand, yes, it is his faith in Christ, but we all know the truth, right? In our lowest moments, we are not able to stand on our own. It is also certainly the gift of Christ through the support of the people in Philippi. And what keeps the people in Philippi going? What keeps them firm in the faith and committed to Christ and sharing the gospel themselves, if not the love and encouragement of the apostle all these many years? This is what I think Paul lays out before us. So look in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 1. He writes and he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's begin looking at the pastor's affections this morning. Paul's affections in verse the first part of verse 7 and in verse 8. He makes a Quick reference back to verse 6. Remember verse 6 is um, a plural statement. We often look at verse 6 as an individual statement that God is going to see us through to the end. And in one hand that's true because even in the life of the church things begin individually and God does give us salvation and God is the one who perseveres us to the end. And so in one sense that's the truth of verse 6. In a fuller sense Paul's talking about their unity around the gospel as a church as a whole. In other words, God has gathered you and God will keep you gathered. The church won't be thwarted. God will see her through to the end, keep her through to the end. And whatever pressures you're facing, Philippian church, you can trust God will provide and protect and preserve His church. And so that's his reference back to that thought. And in verse 7, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. This way of confidence. This way of God's persevering. This way of God's Um, provision, this way of God's caring and keeping of you. Now notice he uses this intriguing word in verse 7, feel. It's interesting to me because in verse 6 he speaks confidently. And he speaks confidently based on the gospel. He speaks confidently based on the character of God. Those are things that we know. They're convictions. But in verse 7 he describes it as a feeling. And the word does mean emotion. At least emotion. But it means more than that as well. It it can also mean deep internal thinking. Or being concerned about. Or having a very strong opinion. Or being convinced about a thing or about someone. In other words, Paul's writing in verse 7, I am convinced about you. I have a strong opinion about you. But it's also 
again, emotional. I am moved to the deep core of who I am with affection, with passion, with desire, as he's going to say in verse 8, with longing concerning God keeping you. And sometimes I think we fall into the, the thinking that emotions are bad. And certainly they can be harmful. They're fallen, right? And they often get in the way. And the church rightly, I think, has avoided, tried to avoid emotionalism, which is the belief that your faith is only wrapped up in your emotions or only wrapped up in how you feel. But in avoiding emotionalism, we tend to swing to the opposite end of the, of the spectrum, to the other extreme, and we say all emotions are bad. They're too fluid. They're too subjective. We shouldn't be emotional beings or emotional creatures. And yet, God has created us as emotional beings, hasn't He? And when those emotions are redeemed and set in right directions and in godly directions, as they are here in Paul's expression, they are a good thing. Paul says, I am deeply, internally, even emotionally moved towards you people. I have a certain feeling. I feel this way about you. I have a deep thought, a deep regard for you. Walter Hansen describes this word as a word that demonstrates interior thoughts, attitudes, feelings that motivate exterior directions and actions. I'm being motivated, Paul says, by this feeling I have for you. Now before we move on, there's another word I want us to consider in verse 7. It's the word right. He says it's right for me to feel this way about you. That word can also mean it's an obligation for me to feel this way about you. So he's saying it's not only good, it's not only appropriate, for me to feel this way about you. I'm obligated to feel this way about you. I'm obligated to, to write and to think and to believe verse 6 is true for you guys. That God will keep you. That you belong to God and He's going to see you through to the end. He will preserve His church. I'm obligated to think these thoughts, have these opinions, have this emotional feeling about you all. Why would the Apostle Paul be obligated? I think this does come down to the pastor's affections and the pastor's position and the pastor's role. And Paul, in a certain sense, is obviously a pastor of this church. In one sense, it is not wrong for the pastor to examine salvation in his people or the lack thereof. In fact, I'm convinced it is a large part of the pastor's job to be looking and thinking and watching and observing and examining the people under his care to see if they truly be in the Lord Christ. That means they have to think things that other people aren't thinking or don't want to think. They have to watch in ways that other people aren't watching. They have to know people in certain ways that other people may not know them. Now, praise God, they're their thoughts aren't the final thoughts, right? God's thoughts are the final thoughts. God's judgment is the final judgment. But so far as the pastor is able, he should be able to look and determine if there be genuine salvation in his people or not. And simultaneously, it is the pastor's job to look and examine and critique even and confront even if there's not unity in the church that he's to care over. 
Those are his obligations. Preserve the body, fight for the body, and fight for the individual salvation of each member of that body. And make sure those things are so. That's why Paul can write in verse 7 and say, I'm obligated towards these things. It's right for me to be concerned about these things because that's the role of a shepherd, isn't it? A shepherd's not a tyrant, but he is a leader. And in 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us he's not a tyrant because it says, shepherd the flock that is among you, not domineering over them. But he is to lead. And in Hebrews 13, 17, he says, he's the one, the shepherd is the one, the leader is the one who gives an account for your soul. He's watching over your own souls. That's his pastoral obligation. And so as a pastor, Paul writes and he says, I have this obligation to be concerned about verse 6 kind of matters. And to feel certain ways about you and to think certain things about you and to be driven towards certain things about you. And notice again in verse 7, he uses the plural language about you all. Not just those who are my favorite. Not just the, the wealthy sheep or the pretty sheep or the sheep that smell good if that's possible. All the sheep. Everyone in the flock is the care of the pastor. His affections extend to every single person. His concern for salvation extends to every single person. His concern for unity extends to every single person. Not this faction or that faction or this half or that half. Everyone's welcomed into the fold. Again, you hopefully remember or have picked up by now, that's a major theme in the opening verses of Paul's letter here. The plural reference in verse 1 and then in every other verse through verse 10. I have an obligation to think certain things about you. Be concerned over certain things about every single one of you. Why? He tells us in verse 7. Because I hold you in my heart. The pastor of anything is to lead his people out of love. The heart in the scriptures is a reference to the very seat of a person. It's the very core of who he is. It's the, the place that his nature dwells. It's the very depths of who he is. Paul looks to these Philippian believers and he says, you occupy the deepest parts of me. The very core of who I am is drawn towards you. The very deep things of me are in regard for you. I love you. I care for you. Over the years, I've been asked numerous times by different people in different churches um, if, if I would be willing to come to their church uh, and pastor their church or ever be willing to go pastor another church. And my answer is, and, and that's true for every pastor. Every pastor faces those um, questions. But, but my answer has been the same almost every time. I say, I can't because these are my people and I'm theirs. 
I've often said Philippians 1, 3 through 11 is my, my love letter from the Bible to Trinity. This is how I feel and think about Trinity. These are my affections for Trinity. And the reason is, is simple for me. My greatest moments in life have happened here, except for salvation. I was saved somewhere else, but this body of people celebrated my marriage. You, you watched me get engaged, and then you celebrated us getting married. This, this church family is where I celebrated the birth of both of my daughters. And I, I'm quick to tell people, my life is bound up in this church, in these people. My darkest moments have happened here. Public depression and all of its humility and all of its shame and all of its fear. These are my people and and I'm theirs. And I think that's exactly what Paul's saying here. You are my people and, and I am yours. I hold you in my heart. You're the very seat you're at the very seat of who I am. You're at the very depths of me. The core of me. My affection for you extends from the most sincere, honest, foundational parts of me. In verse 8, he takes his, his um, terms of endearment a step further. When he... he Basically, in verse 8, issues forth a vow. He says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all. That, that statement is both a testimony and a vow. He's saying, God is the witness of my heart. You want to know if it's true or not? Ask the one who searches and knows hearts. He'll bear witness. He'll be a witness to my heart that what I'm telling you is honest truth. He'll testify that I love you from the core of who I am. But he's also making a vow that not only is God going to be my witness, but I have to be true if God's going to be my witness. And so you're not only in my heart, but you're going to remain in my heart. And he says, I yearn for you, which means I long, I desire, I even groan for you. I'm inwardly inclined towards you. I think of Romans 8 and and creation described as groaning for the day of the Lord. My deepest longings are for you. And then he tells us the kind of affection that he has. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus. What is, what is the affection of Christ Jesus? What does that mean? It means at least... That his love for them is right, holy, godly, pure, good. It also means that it's not self-serving. It's not an inappropriate affection. It's not a worldly or ungodly kind of affection. It's an affection that's grounded First, in their mutual relationship with Jesus Christ. It's one that's been shaped by His own salvation. And it's one that may not have exist, existed without Christ, but because of Christ, exists in the fullest of sense. 
It's a heavenly given, divine sort of affection that's committed, devoted, unwavering, unquestioned, remaining. Calvin translates this verse. I found this to be interesting in my study. He translates this verse as longing for them in the bowels of Christ. So he takes away affection and puts the word bowels. And what he means by that is the same kind of language we use today. The gut, deep gut feeling. From the depth of the gut of Christ, I love you. The word heart can often be translated as bowels in the New Testament. So Calvin's not entirely unfounded in doing that. But he explains why he chooses that word for us. He says, the man that loves according to the flesh has respect to his own advantage. He's seeking his own advantage. And thus may from time to time change his mind according to things like circumstances or seasons. But in the meantime, Paul instructs us by what rule the affections of believers ought to be regulated. What's to govern our affections? And it is Christ sitting at the helm. Unquestionably, true love can flow from no other source than from the depths of Christ. And this, like a prod, ought to affect us not a little. In other words, Calvin wants to say the bowels of Christ because he says when you have been affected by the depths of the love of Christ, then you love with the depth of the love of Christ. When you've tasted of the gut kind of love of Jesus, you love with this deep gut kind of love like Jesus. That is the affection of this apostle to these people. As he's in prison, as he's chained, this extensive traveler, this extensive preacher is now chained in Rome. And in the dark nights when he's alone with this, this guard, what's stirring him up? It's his affections for the Philippian church. But how can he have affections for the Philippian church? Because he's tasted of the affection of Christ. He knows what Jesus' love is like. And that has motivated him to love these people. Here is a pastor's affection for his people. He is concerned about their perseverance in the faith in verse 6. He keeps them locked deep in his heart. They are some of the greatest occupants of his heart's desires. And he yearns for them with this divinely given, heavenly marked, Christ-saturated kind of love. Now at the end of verse 7, he tells us why he loves them such. And this is the people's assistance. I'm a good literator. Pastor's affections and the people's assistance. It's really the church's support of him. They have fueled his love. Notice what he says in verse 7. I hold you in my heart for or because you are all, again, partakers with me of grace. It's an interesting word there, partaker. It could also mean partner. It could mean sharer. It could mean fellowshipper in grace. 
Grace is also an interesting word there. What does he mean by using the term grace? You're a partaker with me of grace in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's not saying that you are recipients of grace because you support me. He's not saying your care for me, your love for me has earned you more grace. He's focusing not on the source of grace, but the nature of grace. He's saying we are bound together because we are both sharing in the one grace of God. And it is that one grace that not only motivates my affections for you, but your affections for me. It motivates your support of me. And let's think about the kind of support that the Philippian church had for Paul. They send him a material gift of some sort, maybe dried food or money or clothes or bedding or something. They send him something to care for his needs. They also send what is likely one of their church leaders, Epaphroditus. We meet Epaphroditus in chapter 2. We learn in chapter 2 that he's an important character in the life of this church. That's why we're safe to assume he's a church leader. And in chapter 4, he's referenced again as being a major part of Paul's gift. So not only are they meeting his physical needs, they're meeting his emotional and spiritual needs by sending someone to care for him, sending someone to minister to him, likely sacrificing fellowship with Epaphroditus, giving up Epaphroditus' service to that church, his leadership to that church, that they might care to, for, for the Apostle Paul. So that's what the letter references. But there's been many, many, many more instances of this church caring for the apostle because in chapter 4, he reminds them, when nobody else partnered with me, you did. He said, from the day in Macedonia, from the first day in Acts 16, every time you had opportunity, you supported me. Which results in what? We talked about this in this passage already. It results in well, verse 12 and 13 and 14. The gospel going forth. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's become known in verse 13 throughout the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Your support of me is not in vain. Your support has allowed the gospel to advance. But your support comes not out of your own goodness, but because we're both partners in the grace of God. You with me and I with you. God has saved us. And that salvation is His grace poured out on us. And that grace affects something, doesn't it? That grace affects change in our lives, doesn't it? That, that grace changes our priorities and changes our outlook. And it enables us and it motivates us. What else? Think about it just very quickly with me. What else would motivate this Philippian church to still care for the Apostle Paul? Think about their circumstances. A pagan Roman city that prided themselves on worshiping the emperor. They're likely already poor. They're likely social outcasts. And they probably haven't seen Paul for many years. What has sustained them? Why did they continue? Why have they been constantly helping even when nobody else entered into partnership with Paul? 
Now, you and I, if we think about this in terms of our own experience, you and I know and experience too often in this fallen world that friendships over time tend to fade away, don't they? They fade away just because we're changing people. You couple in friendships then that extend not just past time, but distance, and they really fade away. In fact, we say that if you have a friendship that's that's transcended time and space, it's a rarity, isn't it? But that doesn't seem to be the case for this relationship. And why is that? Because their relationship isn't built on worldly matters. Their relationship's built on heavenly matters. It's grace that motivates them. It's grace that's enabled them. It's grace that sustained them. You see, their love for the Apostle Paul is really based out of their affection for Christ also. And their affection, their support for Paul, they may not be showing pastoral care like Paul is, but they, we could say their support is an expression of affection. They love Paul just as much as he loves them. And they know that Christ has so changed us that if we love the messenger of Christ, we benefit. What's one of the big indictments of the people of Israel in the New Testament? That they killed and stoned and rejected almost every single prophet sent to them. What does that say? That God has given a gift in the voice and message and mouth of a prophet and they didn't want it? Now the Philippian church realizes God is blessing us and we love God and therefore we love those whom He gives to us. We love the Apostle Paul and we benefit from that loving relationship. Hebrews 13.17 tells us again, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with complaining or grumbling because that would be of no advantage to you. That's what the passage says. Which means, why do we want ministry to be joyous for our church leaders, for our pastors? Because it directly benefits us. It's a very circular reasoning, and that's okay. It's a reciprocal relationship. This church knows, if I continue to love Paul, if I continue to support Paul, if I continue to care Paul for Paul, he will in turn do the same for us. Now notice the kind of support they're rendering to this apostle while he's in prison. It's the first time he mentions his in prison, but he says both in my imprisonment, number one, and in number two, defense and confirmation of the gospel. We've already talked a little bit about imprisonment. They're sending him material things. They're sending him people to encourage him so that even in the darkness of, of prison, even in the, the annoyance of chains binding his wrists or his ankles, He still has the fellowship of the saints. He still has brothers and sisters meeting with him, conversing with him, praying with him, encouraging him, etc., etc., etc. But also, they're supporting in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, in one sense, this reading sounds like they are defending and confirming the gospel as a church. And that is true, but that's not really what Paul's saying now. He's using legal terms here when he refers to the defense and confirmation of the gospel, which makes us think that Paul is referring to his trial 
This is standard practice for, tri- for Paul when he's on trial. He stands before King Agrippa at the end of Acts. And what does he do with King Agrippa? He shares the gospel. It seems as if Paul is saying here, while I'm in prison, you're helping me stay faithful. And when I go to trial before Caesar, it's going to be you that helps me stay faithful. You see, Paul is a human being just like every single one of us, isn't he? And human beings succumb to and often face temptation. And the great temptation is to stay silent. To give up. To get down. To quit. God is gracious to Paul as He is to all of us. And God will sustain us to the end. But what is going to keep Paul up? Who's going to bear Paul up? Just like with Moses fighting uh, Amalek in, in Exodus I think 17. When his arms get tired and he needs his arms to be lifted up. Who's going to hold up Paul's arms when it's time for him to be on trial? When he's exhausted from standing there. When he's exhausted from being in prison. When he's exhausted from doing ministry. Who's going to hold him up and say, keep going. Don't give up. It's worth it. Fight and speak and teach and be clear and be bold and be faithful. Who's going who's to do that for Paul? And Paul knows who's going to do that. It's this Philippian church. Because in every other city that he's gone to, it always seems to be this Philippian church. They're the troops, as Spurgeon says, that Paul doesn't need to turn around and call for, but are right there by his side constantly. You are partakers with me of grace and have supported me in imprisonment and when I've defended and confirmed the gospel, not just with my life, but even more pressingly as I'm in trial, you are the encouragement to help me not give up. You see, God has designed an interdependency here between a pastor and his people. And the people need a pastor to love, to lead, to teach, to shepherd. And a pastor needs a people to support and encourage and hold up and to pray for and to say, keep going, keep fighting, keep teaching. Keep leading. When we talk about church unity, we really mean we're in this together. And it is our collective partnership in the gospel that allows real ministry to take for, to go forth and take root in the world. It's when we do this together, church, that we begin to see God's blessing of an effectual ministry. All motivated by that center phrase in verse 7. Being partakers of grace. You see, Paul has no relationship like this with unbelievers. He's talking to Christians who have tasted of the same salvation as Paul himself. But the other aspect of grace is that they're enabled. They also not are just saved, but also surrender to God's power. His leading, His directing, His strengthening. You must be a Christian to join in this fight together. But church, once we are certain of our salvation in Christ, then let grace be the motivating factor 
for us to, as, as he'll say at the end of this chapter, stand firm, verse 27, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by our opponents. I'm thankful for you. I like to think my heart is occupied with you just like the Apostle Paul. I pray it's God's grace to us that we partner together for ministry. Not our own agenda, not one person's agenda, but Christ's agenda. That we rest in our salvation and that we let that salvation motivate us to go into the world together. 